This is Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. I'm jumping in here before this episode starts because we have some exciting news. We'll soon be launching a new podcast series, and we're putting a call out for a new host. The ideal person will be a Canadian physician, someone who's dynamic and curious, and someone who's excited to have a great conversation with experts about diverse topics that are relevant to family physicians and generalists. So if you think that's you, or if you know someone who might be interested, please check our website for full details or click on the link in the show notes. Okay, back to today's episode. Many options exist nowadays for teenagers choosing to be on hormonal contraceptives. A recently approved long-acting option, which may soon become the most popular option, is designed to be implanted in the upper arm. It's effective for up to three years and doesn't require a pelvic examination prior to insertion. Yet barriers to accessing contraception still exist for adolescents. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm talking to Dr. Margot Rosenthal, who is a PGY5 resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Manitoba. She's joining me today to expand on an article that she co-authored with Dr. Sarah McQuillan in CMAJ about adolescent contraception. We'll discuss the different options available, which choice is best, and what side effects to watch out for right after this break. Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, HZ, or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill makes billing on the go easy and pain-free. Add a patient in as little as three seconds and submit a claim with just a few taps. Start your 45-day free trial today. Visit drbill.app slash cmaj. That's d-r-b-i-l-l dot a-p-p slash cmaj to get started. Welcome, Margo. Hi, Kristen. Thank you for having me today. It is a pleasure to be here and to speak a little bit more about this topic that I'm really passionate about. So I'm interested to hear you say you're really passionate about this. What makes you passionate about contraception in adolescence? I think contraception in general is just such a huge topic about bringing power back to the patient and really allowing people to decide when and if they choose to be parents. And I think the possibility of people making that decision on their own terms is incredibly important. So who should be on contraceptives? So really, if we're speaking about adolescents, any youth who is desiring prevention of pregnancy um, should be considering contraception. And it's important to remember that this is not only um, what we would traditionally think of as um, girls or young women, but really anybody who is engaging in sexual activities that put them at risk of pregnancy. And so this does include transgender or non-binary individuals who have a uterus and a vagina that may put them at risk when engaging with partners that may have a penis um, that could put them at risk with pregnancy. Talking about teenagers who are at risk of becoming pregnant, what sort of barriers might they face to accessing contraception? 
there are several barriers and I think it's important to, to really break these barriers down. So one of the first barriers we think about is really accessing quality information. There's been studies looking at where adolescents are getting information and they've rated school, friends and television as their top three most valuable sources of information. Ideally, these adolescents should be getting high quality, reliable information from um, their physicians or their healthcare practitioners. Another barrier is access to clinics. The Canadian geography is extremely unique and we have many people living in cities, but also people living in small rural and remote communities or adolescents who may not be driving and may be living somewhere without access to public transport, accessing confidential contraceptive care and without involving their parents can be uh, very challenging. And the final barrier we think about um, is about cost. Many of the contraceptives used um, are prescription medications. So that means the cost for most Canadians is out of pocket. Um, some groups may have third-party insurance, um, but this can also be a limitation as the parents are often the primary policyholder. For uh, Indigenous youth, uh, they may have access through non-insured health benefits, but there are limitations to coverage on certain methods. There's also a fair amount of youth clinics or nonprofits, which may have a limited selection of no-cost contraceptives. But this is, again, very limited. So you were talking about adolescents being able to access confidential medical practitioner advice on this topic. What is the practitioner's duty in terms of confidentiality with an adolescent who's seeking contraception? Every um, encounter with an adolescent should include a one-on-one -on -one time with, with the teen. And that comes down to practically routinely asking parents to step out at every visit and making that a part of a routine visit. After that, it's really clearly stated in the boundaries of confidentiality with the adolescent, that there are some boundaries, the importance of disclosing risk to self or others or any activities that are taking place in a position of vulnerability, but that you are really on their side and out to help them and really opening up, opening up that gate. So moving on to different hormonal contraceptive options. What are we looking at as options for teenagers in terms of contraception? Probably the simplest way to break up hormonal contraceptive options um, is what, what we call SARC and LARC. So SARC would be short-acting reversible contraceptives, and LARC would be longer-acting reversible contraceptives. There is a very excellent position statement from the Canadian Pediatric Society in 2018 about contraceptive care in Canadian youth where they're really recommending LARC methods as first line. And so LARC methods are commonly IUDs, so intrauterine devices, which are available in both copper non-hormonal version and uh, the levonorgestrel IUD. Failure rates for both of these devices are less than 1%, and then the hormonal IUDs have the additional benefit of providing menstrual control. Uh, new to the Canadian market is the tonogestrel subcutaneous implant, known as Nexplanon. It was recently approved in Canada in 2020, but has been used internationally for many years. This is an implant that's uh, inserted into the upper arm and provides excellent contraception for three years with a failure rate of 0.05%, making it the, the best contraceptive we have on the market. Moving down in orders of efficacy, there's Depo-Provera, which is um, an intramuscular injection every 12 weeks. It does have a failure rate of about 6% with typical use, 
and is a quite common choice in adolescence and up to 20% of adolescents have tried it. And then uh, with lower efficacy are the SARC methods and these are what we uh, more commonly are comfortable with. So the combined hormonal contraceptive pill, uh, the progestin only pill, uh, the vaginal ring um, or uh, the contraceptive patch. And these have higher failure rates of up to 9% with typical use. And I think it's also really important to remember that uh, emergency contraception is a hormonal option and very important to be discussing with patients. And there's some that does require prescription uh, and some that does not. Right. So when we're talking about SARCs and you talk about a 9% failure rate, does that factor in the fact that they are short acting and that people can forget to take them? That's exactly right. So with perfect use, the failure rates are about 0.3%, uh, but the typical use of failure rate of 9% takes into account missed doses. And the position statement from um, the Canadian Pediatric Society, I'm guessing, is coming from a place of long-acting contraceptive devices being more reliable. Yes, and that the, the LARC methods should be first line as they're very high efficacy, they have high continuation rates, and there's a high ease of use. Um, so these are very effective devices at providing contraception. Another important piece is the R, which means it's a reversible method. Um, nobody is ever using these devices with the intention of leaving them in place forever. They can easily be reversed if it's due to an intolerance or a side effect or uh, a planning of a pregnancy. In your experience, do teenagers ask about the possibility of um, non-reversal of the contraception? Are they ever worried about being on a long-term contraceptive and then, you know, wanting to get pregnant in six years or something? That is definitely a question that some youth are asking. Many youth who've tried Depo-Provera have found a, a long time of return to menses if they've been amenorrheic, and that can be quite concerning for some patients. There are quite common misconceptions about the intrauterine devices and that it might be affecting fertility in the long run. Um, there's good evidence to state that that is not the case and that um, really dispelling some of these myths is very important in this, especially the high-risk adolescents. Let's talk a little bit about side effects of these contraceptives and things that you need to think about when prescribing them. Absolutely. So it's another nice piece of the LARC method. The copper IUD, for example, has no hormonal component. So there's very few contraindications. Um, to a copper IUD, but some of the side effects can be heavier uh, menses, and some patients might have um, increased cramping with their menses. In terms of the levonorgestrel IUDs, um, the ones available at this time are the Kylina, which is a slightly smaller device, and the Mirena, which has it's a slightly larger device uh, with a higher dose of levonorgestrel. Um, the drawback for some patients for these insertion of these devices is that it does require a pelvic exam and that the insertion can be quite uncomfortable. Uh, there are certainly many pediatric and adolescent gynecologists who have access to an operating room and can place these devices under sedation, but some adolescents actually do very, very well in a clinic setting. That brings us to the next one on, which is the newest um, piece on the Canadian market uh, and can be quite an attractive option for adolescents as they do not need sedation, they do not need a pelvic exam, um, and the Insertion process has been very much streamlined by the manufacturer and is a simple insertion under local anesthetic in the office. One of the side effects to Nexplanon can be 
unpredictable menstrual bleeding. Um, about 20% of patients are amenorrheic, and another about 30% have lighter irregular menstrual bleeding. The bleeding patterns can be very difficult to predict. It's probably the biggest drawback to the next one on. Circling back to what you were saying about where adolescents get their information in the beginning of our talk, if there are side effects like irregular menses and teens talk to each other, do you ever find that you'll have youth in clinic saying, my friend said that she was constantly on her period after she had um, the implant. What should I expect? So we definitely have those type of conversations with Devo. The implant is so new that I think there's not quite that experience among youth um, with the Nexplanon device. But there are many patients who will come in saying, my friend has a Mirena IUD and she doesn't get her period anymore. And I think I want that. So that conversation actually can go both ways and people can see uh, amenorrhea as a, a wanted side effect. And with the implant that lasts for up to three years, if it is causing unbearable side effects, is it easily removable? A correctly placed implant is very superficial under the skin and is actually palpable under the skin um, and should have a, a quite simple removal process. The levels of etonogesterol in the bloodstream fall very, very quickly um, and within days uh, will be out of the patient's system. Um, which is important to remind patients that unlike depot, where they may have head effects or a longer return to amenorrhea, if their nexplanon is removed, um, their body can start cycling immediately. In your article, you talk a bit about bone mineral density and concerns around the, the sarks in that area. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So traditional birth control pills um, had significantly higher doses of ethanol estradiol than the doses we're using today. So every birth control pill on the market today should be considered a low-dose pill. Um, there's a bit of a misconception among certain providers that if an adolescent is younger, that she should be on a very low-dose pill. But there's actually growing evidence that because 40% of bone mineralization occurs in the adolescent years, that providers should be choosing an oral contraceptive pill with over 30 micrograms of ethanol estradiol to really maximize the bone density in these patients. And what is the effect on bone mineral density of other contraceptive options? So we know that uh, Depo-Provera can have a decrease in bone mineral density during its use, but that in most studies appears that it does rebound after cessation of use. Um, the contraceptive implant uh, does not appear to have an impact on bone density. Uh, and with the intrauterine devices, the effect is mostly local with a lot lower systemic levels. Um, so there's very minimal effect on bone mineral density with intrauterine devices. For adolescents who choose long-acting options, are they as safe as they can be or do they still need to consider uh, barrier methods? That's a really excellent question. And we also talked about that uh, in the article. So there is um, Canadian data showing that about 1 in 20 teens have actually been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection. Um, in that same study, about 75% of youth reported using a condom at their last sexual encounter. There's 
evidence specifically in adolescents using LARC methods that they're up to 60% less likely than their peers who are not using uh, LARC methods to use condoms. Um, this may be driven by a combination of factors, um, potentially less fear of pregnancy. But this group of teens um, is also more likely to have more sexual partners. So I think it's really, really important to remind adolescents the importance of uh, barrier contraceptives uh, to decrease their risk of STIs. And when we were talking about um, information sharing between uh, physicians and patients, it's important to remind these patients of some of the long-term effects of some of these sexually transmitted infections, um, and especially what uh, the sequelae can be if they are undiagnosed and untreated. And one more piece to that, commonly sexually transmitted infection testing is only either urine or a swab testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Uh, but I think the plug that we need to be doing full testing, which includes serology for HIV, hepatitis B, um, hepatitis C, and syphilis, as we've seen growing rates in certain areas of the country. Are there any particular teens who should not take hormonal contraceptives? So the main limitation to contraceptives is actually the estrogen component. Um, so that's the ethyl estradiol. And that's actually mostly contained in SARC methods. So the pill, the patch, the ring all have estrogen in them. The estrogen is contraindicated in any patients who have a migraine with aura, any patients who are within six weeks of delivery, any patients with hypertension or diabetes with complications, or anybody who has a venous thromboembolism or a thrombogenic mutation, um, as well as patients with liver tumors or severe cirrhosis. These patients who cannot have estrogen still have very excellent contraceptive options, including bevanogestrel IUDs, copper IUDs, Nexplanon, Depo, um, which are very effective methods which do not carry the same risk because they do not have any uh, ethyl estradiol. So all this talk about contraception, are we winning against adolescent pregnancy in Canada? So I think we are winning. Um, internationally, uh, adolescent pregnancies represent up to about 10% of live births, but there's been dropping rates over the past several years in Canada, from 5.3% of all live births in 2000, down to 1.7% of all live births in 2019, uh, when a mother is younger than 19 years old. And so I do think that we are making progress toward decreasing adolescent pregnancy rates, but I think we still have a long way to go in terms of optimizing contraceptives that our, our youth are using. And I think the biggest take home for this is for providers to really consider using LARC methods, whether that be an entry device or an implant um, in their adolescence, and to really reframe our thoughts to make that it's truly a first-line method um, and for providers to become more comfortable with these methods. I think you make the point very well in the article that even though rates of pregnancy among teens are decreasing in Canada, 80% of teen pregnancies are still unwanted pregnancies and some end in termination. And so there's still a good reason to be really concerned about getting kids the best contraception that they can. And there are significant um, long-term effects on these patients' physical, emotional, and socioeconomic health, um, detrimental effects really from unplanned pregnancies. And even within the pregnancies themselves, um, they're higher risk for pregnancy complications, including preterm birth and tree dry growth restriction. So it's really important to focus on the highest quality contraceptives that we can offer these patients. Well, it's been great talking to you about this, um, this topic today. Thank you, Margot. Thanks for joining me today. 
Thank you so much for, for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Dr. Margot Rosenthal, an obstetrics and gynecology resident based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. You can read the article she co-authored on our website or by clicking in the link in the show notes. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief of CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Surgery is both an art and a science. We dissect out both on Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. I'm Chad Ball, the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. And I'm Amir Farouk, associate digital editor for the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Each episode, we are joined by amazing guests, ranging from iconic surgeons from around the world, as well as leaders in other fields such as coaching, accounting, law, and more, as we try to understand how to become better surgeons, physicians, and human beings. Listen to Cold Steel wherever you get your podcasts.